We praise you, Lord, for not abandoning us when we have abandoned you. We praise you, Lord, for offering your hand of love in our darkest and most lonely moments. We praise you, Lord, for putting up with such stubborn souls as ours. We praise you, Lord, for loving us more than we love ourselves. We praise you, Lord, for continuing to pour out your blessings upon us, even when we respond poorly. We praise you, Lord, for drawing out the goodness in all people. We praise you, Lord, for repaying our sin with your love. And we praise you, Lord, for being constant and unchanging amidst all the changes of the world. We are grateful to be your people, Lord. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Bibles, if you would, to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I have some friends who have Bibles, and if you don't have a Bible, I would like to uh, lend you a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, you can just keep this as your own. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, some say that this is one of the most important, if not the most important text uh, in the Old Testament. So 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting with verse 1, we're going to read through uh, the beginning of verse 14, but I'd like to invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. You can find 2 Samuel chapter 7 in your Bible, your tablet, your, uh, you can Google it, whatever the case may be. But uh, I will be reading out of the New Living Translation, so I invite you to hear the Word of the Lord for us out of the lectionary this evening. It says, When King David was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies, the king summoned Nathan the prophet. Look, David said, I am living in a beautiful cedar palace, but the ark of God is out there in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Go ahead and do whatever you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. But the same night, the Lord said to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord has declared. Are you the one to build a house for me to live in? I have never lived in a house from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until this very day. I have always moved from one place to another with with a tent and a tabernacle as my dwelling. Yet no matter where I have gone with the Israelites, I have never once complained to Israel's tribal leaders, the shepherds of my people of Israel. I have never asked them, why haven't you built me a beautiful cedar house? Now go and say to my servant David, this is what the Lord of heaven's army has declared. I took you from tending sheep in the pasture and selected you to be the leader of my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and I have destroyed all your enemies before your eyes. Now I will make your name as famous as anyone who has ever lived on the earth, and I will provide a homeland for my people Israel, planting them in a secure place where they will never be disturbed. Evil nations won't oppress them as they've done in the past, starting from the time I appointed judges to rule my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings, For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and he will make his kingdom strong. And I I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. This is the word of God for the people of God. And let us say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. So David, this musician's shepherd boy turned giant killer, turned warrior, poet, 
turned political mastermind, turned king of all Israel, has now defeated his enemies, and he's finally consolidated this kingdom. The civil war is over, and the northern kingdom, as well as the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel, as well as the southern kingdom of Judah, are united. And there is Jerusalem, the city of David, and it's Israel's capital, and it's secure. Victory is his, there is finally peace and the land. And, and there's, there's a lot that you could say about David. As we've read First and Second Samuel, there is a lot you could say about David. But one thing is for sure, he is interesting. As Debbie Blue puts it, she says, he's beautifully vulnerable, but at the same time, he's a violent mercenary. He's an adulterer, power-hungry, and he's a manipulator. And the narrative of, of David and God's interaction with him draw in, uh, draws in our sympathy, but it draws in our critique as well. It, it reminds me of, you know, our own president of the United States, where controversy constantly surrounds him as the leader. It seems to be very similar to the leadership of David. So David is one of the most ambitious characters in the Scripture. He's reached every single goal he has ever set out to achieve, and he's done it with God's help. And one day he, he looks around, and he's sitting in his palace, and he looks around, and he realizes he's, he's got it all. David, who is constantly strategizing, is sitting in this amazing home built of cedar. It's full of great art. It's like a museum. Servants are bringing him whatever he wants, and he's got all the amenities of 900 BC technology. It's all there right there, and it dawns on him that he lives in a better house than God. Now, if you don't know this, for generations, the sacred symbol of God has been the Ark of the Covenant. I showed this to you last week. It's a picture. And this Ark was carried wherever the people went. And it's been moved around a lot. It's been carried into battle. It was there when victories happened. It was stolen a few times once by the Philistines, and then later by the Nazis. It was taken, secured by Indiana Jones. Are you awake? He had to recover it. Most of the time, it was protected. It was protected by the elements simply under a tent. And this made sense when people were poor desert wanderers, but it didn't make any sense to David now that he's sitting in this amazing palace and they had established national security. So he comes up with this great idea. I'm going to build a house for God. I'm going to build a temple. Now, this is what kings do when they've secured their power. They start a temple building program. Leaders of countries still do this. Our capital building in Washington, D.C. looks like a temple. This is the United States Capitol. Churches do this with their building. This is a picture of the Vatican in Rome. These buildings look like temples. They're symbols of success and influence. So David takes this idea and he goes and he talks to his pastor, Pastor Nathan. I love this part of the story. 
And Pastor Nathan does just what people do uh, when, they con- when they come to me. Just what I would do. When, uh, it, Pastor Nathan does just what I do when people come to me with great ideas for God. That's what I meant to say. He, he looks at David and he just says, go for it. This is a great idea. Why wouldn't he do that? I mean, this is, honestly, this is one of my favorite parts of the job. I really, really like helping people dream about how they use their gifts and their talents and even their resources to make a difference. I I spend my life trying to get people to do things for God. Sometimes I just want to look at you and I want to say, do something. Do anything. It doesn't matter. Just do something. Frankly, I'm just happy when people think about God from time to time. And when people come to me and they say that they want to give to God, they want to do something for God, I mean, and they want to give God something big, I'm about ready to do cartwheels. It wasn't that long ago where a guy called me and he said, and literally these are his words, Chris, I've got money burning a hole in my pocket. Can I write a check to your church? Seminary 101, the thing that they teach you is this, it would be dumb to turn down real estate and money. Don't ever do that. So Nathan says, of course, Pastor Nathan says, yes, David, this is a good plan. Yes, yes, a thousand times yes. Go for it. Do what you want to do. David's in a good spot. He's in a really good spot. He's got money burning a hole in his pocket. The emergency fund is stocked. Morale is high among the employees. Business is really good. The house is now built. So let's do something for God. Let's build God a home. Let's build God a temple. But God, he doesn't like this idea. And that night, God does what God does from time to time. He rearranges everything, and he shuffles the deck on everyone. He reorganizes positions and expectations, and in in a single statement, he puts everybody in their place. At the beginning of the passage, if you look, you, you probably have your thumb in it, I'm sure, but if you look, you'll see at the beginning of the passage, David is referred to by a title. They call him the king. The writer refers to him multiple times, and the king But God, later on, does not refer to David by this title, but instead he tells Nathan, Pastor Nathan, you go tell this message to my servant. O'Burn, that's a good one, God. He, He puts things in order. This is what he says, essentially, that night the word of God comes to Nathan and he says, I want you to go tell my servant, David. And I want to make sure that you know that this is directly coming from me. You think you're going to go build a house for me to live in? Thanks for telling me what I need, David. You know, don't you, that I've I've never lived in a house from the time I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt until now. And all that time, I've moved around with nothing but a tent. In all my travels with Israel, have I ever said to any one of those old leaders that I was in charge of, by the way, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? So Pastor Nathan is scolded just a bit. And uh, now he's in between a rock and a hard place, and he's already spoken for God. He's, he's already given the king his blessing. Now he's going to risk his life and turn down, turn down the money and 
take the blessing away. And, you know, there are sometimes, any fundraiser would know this, there are sometimes when rich people don't like it if you ask them for money. But then there are other rich people that get sort of offended when you take their money and then you give it back, rejecting their offer. This, this scene makes me feel like I'm watching an episode of The Sopranos or something like that, and Nathan is going to get whacked. David says to Nathan, I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse, and then God refuses it. And this leaves me with all kinds of questions. Why would God, why would God reject this offer of worship from David? Why wouldn't God listen to the seminary professor? I mean, haven't we learned in Sunday school growing up? Isn't it just basic Christian knowledge that that God wants us to honor Him? And doesn't God want our best? And doesn't He demand faithfulness and loyalty? This is one of those passages that leave us with some questions, as many passages in First and Second Samuel have. Sometimes God leaves us wondering. Sometimes God leaves us scratching our heads. And, and sometimes God leaves us with questions. You know, when I, I got thinking about this, when you look into a, a microscope, you, you can see cells maybe that are on the slide, and the cells tell us a lot, but there is a lot to be left desired once we discover something about cells. So, so there is a lot when we peer deep into these texts. There's a lot that we learn about God, but then there's a lot to be left desire. There, there's, there's mystery to behold. This, this kind of thing happens when we look deep into these Jewish texts. There's so much about God that we discover, but there's also so much about God that still needs to be discovered. So many of our questions get answered when we read texts like this, but then the answers just lead to more questions. So let me, if you have questions, let me just ease your mind. If you have questions about faith, let me ease your mind. If you have questions where your faith questions lead to more faith questions, because here at the 8th Street Street Church, we think questions are a really good thing. The scientist asking questions about the body is what forces her to respect and pursue her craft. For us, asking questions about these mysterious texts are what force us to continue our pursuit of God. And when I read this text, I got questions. So this week, this woman sent me an email about a difficult part of Scripture that left her with a lot of questions. We exchanged ideas back and forth about the particular text she was reading and, and, and what it means to live into these parts of the story where the writer seems to be a little bit ambiguous and seems to foster more questions than he, or if the writer was a she, she answers. And I loved what this lady had to say about these kinds of texts. She said, one of the ways I've changed over the years is that I am more comfortable living in the ambiguity. I don't have to have all the answers anymore. In fact, I'm a bit skeptical of Christians now who feel that they do have all the answers. And then she said this, I've learned to be comfortable with mystery. And even more, I've actually enjoyed embracing mystery, resting in mystery, because that means that my God is bigger than my understanding. I like that. That helps me when I come to the text and I have questions. The questions help me to pursue this God who is big and vast and is a mystery 
These questions help me to seek after God. And so, together with these questions, we do that. We seek. We examine. We look for clues. We peek around the corners. We try to listen better. The psalmist said, David himself said, that God spoke and said, if you seek me, you will find me if you seek me with all your heart. So, hopefully, what we will do is learn more about ourselves and about this God if we ask questions. Why would God reject David's offer? Sometimes it's helpful to look deep, deep, deep into the text like what we have done, like we're looking under a microscope, but then sometimes it's necessary to take a giant step back and look at the whole picture. So let's take a step back and look at the whole picture because in some cases when we do this, the ambiguity becomes a little bit more clear and we, we find out something that we're looking for. So when I took a step back, I need to let you know something. And that is something goes on down here. Something goes down here. I mean, something goes on here that changes history, but it can only be seen from the stepping back view, from the helicopter view. And Walter Brueggemann, who's one of my favorite Old Testament, Old Testament uh, scholars, said, uh, said this. He said that this just might be the most important section of the Old Testament. When you look back, it is 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, up until this point in Israel's story, the most important theological word, the most important God word has been the word if. A few weeks ago, I showed you this picture. This is the biblical timeline. This is us stepping back, uh, reimagining what the whole timeline would be from creation to the future, from creation to new creation. And the Old Testament, uh, that which goes from creation to silence here, the Old Testament is just a series of these many Jewish stories that make up one large Jewish narrative and eventually the Christian story. And from the beginning of creation through the patriarchal narratives of Abraham into the story of Exodus, the conquest of Canaan and the entry into the promised land through the period where the judges ruled, God had extended his covenant promise to this group of people and it went something like this. I will be your God and you will be my people if. If is a theological word. It's a God word. I will be your God and you will be my people if. Now that is a really important word, if. If you obey, I will not forget you. If you do my will, salvation will come to you. If you follow me, I will bless you and make you a blessing. A lot of people live as if the word if is their most important God word, their most important theological word, their most important word that they live with. If I give, God will give me something. If I serve, God will serve me. If I am good, God will be good to me. People live hanging on to this word if. If. It's a deeply theological word. It's a word that assumes that an exchange is taking place. Scratch my back, God, and I will scratch yours. Do me a favor, and I'll do you one. Make me a promise, and I'll make you a promise. And the way that David saw his relationship with God, and the way everyone up until 2 Samuel chapter 7 saw their relationship with God at this point was, was the way in which Martin Buber calls an I-it relationship. 
God was used. God was a means to an end. God was an object to get what you want. David's relationship up until this point was with a box, a symbol of God. But as we've, as we've learned over these few weeks, the text insists time and time and time again that God is a free agent. God is not an object. God is relationship. God is a relational entity. And all that David has has come from this hand of God. And scholars believe that the ark represented God's freedom. In a moment, and in a moment of political brilliance, David decides because he sees God as an object, because he's got an I-it relationship with God, he decides to secure his position with God, and he's going to do it by building God a permanent home, a temple, and he's going to make a deal with God. And as a result, he is going to lock God down, making sure that God will never depart. And he is under the authority of David forever. If I build God a house, God will never leave. And you know what? God cannot be locked down. God is a free agent, able to choose where he wants to go, and he's able to go where God wants to go for God's sake. But something happens. In the night conversation between Nathan and God that changes things forever. And what happens next is not just a plot twist or a theological twist. It's a relationship twist. The world was never the same after what happens next. God not only puts everyone in his rightful place, not only does he set the right order of things, but then God reveals his plans. And God says to Nathan, pass this message on to my servant and tell him that it comes from the true king. My name is the God of the angel armies. And make sure he knows that I plucked him out of the fields when he was still a sweaty runt uh, scooping sheep excrement for a living. And it was I, the true king, the God of the angel armies that then made him a son. He is, the text says, my prince. He's famous because of me. And because of my covenant, now his people have a home. They are no longer wanderers being kicked around wherever they go. I have plans to give them peace among their enemies forever. I can just imagine Pastor Nathan here, fearful and teeth clenched as he has to go and relay this message to David, scared as he's, as he's getting the lecture from God, thinking that he's going to hear it, he's going to hear the word if. I am going to give peace to David's enemies and I'll stick to my end of the bargain if. But that word doesn't come. And for the, for the first time, the most important theological word in history is no longer if. The word is however. However changes everything. Nathan hears this. The God of the angel armies has one more thing to say to you. I, I am in charge. And your plans are not going to get in the way of my plans. You're not going to build me a house, David. However... I am going to build you a house. 
Now, if you read the original Hebrew here, you would find that the author is doing a play on words in a way that the English doesn't translate, but it's really important for us to see because it changes everything. House can be, have several different meanings. It can, be, it can mean like literally a house, but it can also mean a dynasty. So in other words, the writer is trying to say to David that David wanted to build God a house, but God, however God in his goodness wanted to build David a family. He wanted to give David a family. In the middle of the night, God showed Nathan that David's building plans for God would get in the way of God's building plans for David. And God's building plans for David had been all along to save. To save David, to save Israel, to save the world by giving a family. You know, you notice that Jesus of Nazareth is not, even, is not mentioned in this text, right? But God talks about a son, one that will follow the royal line of David. So those who are part of the Jesus community, they seize this text, and they believe that this text was speaking to the reality of the saving work of Jesus. Through Jesus of Nazareth, they believed. God's anointed one, the Messiah of the royal line of David, the whole world might be saved. Relationship was being extended, not if, but however. However you are, however I am, whatever you've done, whatever I've done, Wherever you've been, wherever I've gone, relationship is extended. Some believe that this is, it's messianic, scholars say. It's evangelistic, theologians add. It's the gospel, pastors proclaim. We have moved from an if theology to a however theology. And the Jesus community saw in Jesus that he was the new David and that in Jesus, God's love for the first time was unconditional and God's family was for everyone. Here we are, a new church in an almost fully remodeled building when the air conditioner gets fixed and the steeple goes up. God built a house for us, and we must be fully aware of the dangers that are here. The dangers that are here, this place, that there are dangers. He has built this house for us, but his intent is to build really a family among us. And the danger is when we try to make plans for God and go about doing it our way. And the danger lies when we forget to ask, which we forget to ask all the time, what is it that God wants for us? The danger lies when we do our projects and start our ministries and we build buildings and we distract people from seeing what God is doing. Do you know how you avoid the danger? Do you know how we avoid the danger? We don't want to be caught in these dangerous spots. We remind ourselves. And the way in which we remind ourselves is that we remind ourselves that in Jesus, God builds a brand new family made up of ugly and outcast or left behind or lonely or isolated. 
This was a story that was begun thousands of years ago. It is the way that we call God's grace, His mercy, His compassion. Do you know what keeps us from the dangerous places? Coming to this table and retelling this story. And and seeing once again that the way that God has decided to save the world, the way that God has decided to save Israel, the way that God has decided to save David, the way that God has decided to save us is through a bloody, shamed, crucified, and then resurrected, anointed Christ. The word Messiah, David, the anointed one, the true king. This is what we do when we come to this table. We remember what the table represents. We remember that He is the one who is the King come to establish a new royal line of hope. At this table, we experience salvation. At this table, we experience the however. At this this table, we experience forgiveness. At this table, we experience what it means to be a new family. At this table, we remember that he came to set things right. The judges couldn't do it. Saul, the first king, couldn't do it. David and his sons couldn't do it. We can't do it. And what we cannot do, Jesus of Nazareth, the new king, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who is of the royal line of David, he is capable to do. He is the king. His crown was his thorns. His cross was his throne. His royal sign uh, was one of mockery that hung above his head. His subjects were those who shamed him. And Jesus said about them, Father, they have no sense. They have no idea what they're doing. Forgive them. These were not favors. This was relationship. At our church, we believe that communion is a means of grace, which means that something happens at this table that God does for us that we cannot do on our own. It is sacred. It means that we take into our bodies the bread and the wine, and God does something in us. It's an invitation to yield our plans. It's an invitation to stop dealing with God as if God was an object whereby we just exchange favors and goods and services. And it's an invitation here to join God's family. So we come to this table and confess that this is the family that we want to be a part of. So I want to tell you the story. And it goes like this. At dinner on the night before Jesus was betrayed by those he came to save, he took the bread and he broke it and he held it up and he said, this is my body which has been broken for you. And then after supper in the same way, he took the cup and he held up the cup And he said, this cup represents the new covenant is my blood. And whenever you drink this, I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. Anyone who places their trust in this God and wants to join this new family and be in relationship with God is invited to this table. We want no barriers, so I want to let you know that our bread is gluten-free, our wine is non-alcoholic. But when you come, I want you to move out the left side of your row and come down the aisle with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. Come to one of these servers, listen to what they have to say, and then when you have heard it, and you have, you have taken into your mind and your heart what they have had to say, I want, you to, I want to invite you to dip the bread into the cup and take this good gift into your body. If for any reason you cannot make it down our aisle, 
I just want you to wave at Justin and he will come and he will serve you. My friends, allow me to pray and then I want you to come. We consecrate these elements to you, Lord, knowing that we take into our bodies this wonderful story. It's a story of how you've wanted to save. We do not have an exchange of goods relationship with you. For you are our Father, and now we are your sons and your daughters. And for that, we are grateful. So we come with hearts and hands open. And it's in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, the relational God that we pray. Amen. You may come when you're ready.